as Carol was praying this morning, the Lord brought to mind a conversation I had with a close friend of mine a number of years ago. And she was um, expressing to me just this feeling that she had become so distant from God. And um, whether it was through personal choices or circumstances or, or whatever, whatever the reason was, I forget all the details of the conversation, but she was explaining it like she felt like, you know, this is her and this is God, and they had just been, you know, going, going like this. And as, as she was talking about that with me, I, I had this picture for her, and I was like, that's, that's not what it's like at all. It's, it's, it's like this, where you've been running, and you're looking the other direction, and you think God is so far, but you turn around, and he's right there, right? Because he, he will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. So I, I think the reason why the Lord brought that picture to mind is I, I have a sense this morning um, that for some of you, what, perhaps what the enemy would like to deceive you with is that you can't just access his present presence in the moment. Um, but in Christ, that is such a lie. That is such a lie. Because no matter, no matter what you've been struggling with or walking through or what, what kind of burdens you're carrying in your life and in your experiences, because you are in Christ, you have constant and immediate access to God's presence. So do not let the enemy or your flesh deceive you for one moment. Because the Lord desires to be found, and all who seek him will find him. So this morning, um, just as, uh, as I'm sharing the word with you this morning, any distraction, anything in your life that would keep you from experiencing God's presence here or, or hearing his word for us and then for you individually, in Christ you can say, that's, that's not going to block me from you, Jesus. Uh, you have eliminated all, all things between you and I, right? He's eliminated all condemnation, all separation between God and man in Christ has been removed. So if there's something that, that you're carrying with you today that would keep you from just being present, hearing the word of the Lord, and, and sitting with him, uh, with your brothers and sisters this morning, I would just invite you as a son, a daughter of God, to just set that aside in Christ and be with him. Amen? All right. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 9. I have been uh, so looking forward to teaching on, uh, on Acts chapter 9. And just a quick plug, um, if you weren't here last Sunday, I would really encourage you to listen to Mike Morby's teaching from last week. It, w- it was a very timely teaching uh, for Parker Ford Church. I listened to it. I was, of course, last week I was at the retreat, so I didn't hear it. But then I listened to it when I was driving in the car this week. And there were a couple points where the Lord was, uh, was just speaking in a really special way. It brought tears to my eyes. and, and that's really, It was really timely, beautiful, well-taught words. So I'd encourage you to go back. And, and listen to that. So thank you, Mike. If you're in here, appreciated your ministry to us um, this past week. But I've been um, really looking forward to Acts chapter 9. This, is, this, of course, is the story of Paul when he meets Jesus. And at this point, he's Saul. Yeah, uh, he's known as Saul. And he's about to meet Jesus, uh, the, one he, the one he's been persecuting, the one he's been fighting against, and something 
Um, He has a a revelation of the risen Lord, and it's so powerful that the number one enemy of Christianity, in many ways, from this point forward, becomes its number one proponent and uh, the number one witness. It's just an incredible, incredible story. I've been, uh, over the last couple months, I've been reading two books in uh, preparation uh, for, for the second half of Acts. The first half of Acts is kind of focuses on uh, Peter and the church in Jerusalem. And then the second half of Acts shifts to the ministry of Paul and uh, his missionary journeys. And if you are interested in maybe understanding Paul in a new way, if you've struggled with the epistles like many people have, I know I certainly have wrestled with them and some of the stuff he says in them, both of these are incredibly helpful uh, resources. The first is by F.F. Bruce. Um, It's called Paul, the Apostle of the Heart Set Free. F.F. Bruce was an incredible New Testament scholar of the previous generation, and this is like his life's work on Paul collected into one uh, volume. And the second is a recent book by N.T. Wright, and it's the uh, biography of Paul, and this is amazing. N.T. Wright, of course, is one of the more important uh, and helpful New Testament scholars of this generation, and this is his life's work on Paul. Um, put in the form of a biography, and it's very easy to read. So if you're interested in extracurricular homework uh, and bonus points, I will give you bonus points if, if you read this. Um, while we're walking through Acts, um, I'd encourage you to pick up a copy of, of that. And um, as I'm sharing the story of Paul, uh, I wanted to share that with you um, in full disclosure because a lot of uh, what I'm going to share this morning has been uh, influenced by, by reading these two things. So um, a lot of the thoughts and ideas come from N.T. Wright and F.F. Bruce. So at this point, I'm going to read the chapter, and then we're going to go through uh, some other stuff this morning to give it context and background. But while I'm reading uh, this story of Paul uh, coming to meet Jesus, the resurrected Lord, for the first time, can I invite you to stand uh, as, we, as we read the word? But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. 
And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and he was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for the story of of Saul. This man who was kicking against the bricks, kicking against the goad, was was, uh, pulling in the exact wrong direction, who hated you and hated your people at the sight of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, his whole life is transformed. And that transformative power remains as powerful and authoritative in our own lives today as it was for Paul. And so we invite you, God, to give us the same revelation of your glory, of your authority, of your power, of your dominion, your sovereignty, your goodness, your love, your grace, of Jesus risen and glorified this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the story. It's a gift for us to have. We invite you to teach us new things about yourself, this morning through this story. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. This is uh, a famous painting uh, by Caravaggio. I don't know. Might be how you say it. <laughs> From 1601. And uh, it's, it's, of course, the story of Saul being blinded by the light. Saul most likely would not have been riding a horse. If anything, he would have been on a donkey, uh, like Jesus into Jerusalem. But it's a beautiful painting. This is uh, a map of the road from Jerusalem to Damascus. You can see that it's a pretty good way. And Damascus is in modern-day Syria to the northeast of, of Israel. So this is the road that Saul and his companions were on that day. There's two words that I want to um, look at the definition of while we're thinking about this story this morning, and they're two well-known words uh, in Christianity, and the first is confession, and the second is repentance, and I just want to give some basic definition and possibly a little bit of redefinition around confession, because I think that for most Christians, we understand only uh, one side of the coin, but confession is a two-sided coin. And uh, let me explain. So confession, um, at, at the heart of what confession is, it is to see as God sees. When you see something the same way that God sees something, you have appropriately confessed. 
Now, I think for, for many of us in the church, when we think of confession, we tend to have a picture of like Catholic, uh, the Catholic confession where you go and you sit with a priest in a booth and you tell him all the bad things that you did over the last week or month or year, however long it was in between uh, when you sat with him. And, and many of us carry that connotation, whether or not we've ever been Catholic, we still have that sort of idea of confession, that what confession is, is telling God and telling others the bad things that we've done. And, and that is a, a part of confession, but it's a very small piece of what God designed confession to be holistically. So if confession is to see as God sees... It's not just seeing the negative things, the sinful things as God sees them. It's also seeing the positive things as God sees them. So when Peter proclaimed his famous confession, did he confess any sins or wrongdoing in Peter's confession? No. What is Peter's confession? He says, you are the Christ the anointed one, the Messiah. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what do we call that? That's called Peter's confession. There's no admission of wrongdoing or guilt or anything like that. It's Peter seeing Jesus as God sees Jesus. That's what it is to confess. When you see as God sees and agree with it, you have confessed. So, um, the, the word that's translated um, in the scriptures from the Greek to confess is, uh, it carries both those connotations. The negative side of confession, I don't mean negative as in bad, I mean negative as in when you confess your sins and you, you say, <laughs> the other day I was driving to church and uh, in the morning and I came to the stop sign right down the road here and the person in front of me coming the opposite direction clearly got to the stop sign well before me. Like, like well before me. I'm still, like, back up the hill, coming down the hill, and they stopped. And so I stopped, and they just sat there. And I'm like, come on. I'm waving them on. Come on. And, and, and they're just sitting there. Come on. It's your turn. Let's go. Come on. And so finally, I'm getting frustrated now. I floor it through. The, the stop sign, and I give him one of these gestures, like when I'm, when I'm driving by, like, what's wrong with you? And, and as soon as I did it, as soon as I did it, the Lord was like, that's my child. How dare you talk to him like that? It's like, oh, you're right. Here I am driving to church to try to minister to people. And I'm frustrated at this guy at a stop sign because he didn't do a California rolling stop. So certainly confession is that. When you, when you have those types of, whether big or small, those situations where you, you look at it. And then, so my confession is, okay, I'm not going to see him like I see him in my flesh. I'm going to see him as God sees him. And how does God see him? God sees him as his precious son. And who knows what's going on in this man's life? What kind of pain he's in today? What kind of... I mean, when, I, when I'm driving and I'm distracted because I'm grieved, like, the last thing I need is some punk kid 
driving by and giving me a, a rude gesture. That, that, that's to confess, right, when you, when you see that as, as God sees that. But you can see from the definition up here that it also means to profess. That, that word, that, that same word, uh, also means to profess. It means to acknowledge openly and joyfully. And that's why we call Peter's confession Peter's confession, because he acknowledges openly and joyfully that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, repentance, um, the definition of you are walking this direction in your spirit, and then to repent means you turn and you walk in the opposite direction. And uh, that, that's a pretty good definition of the biblical understanding of repentance. So as we're going through the story of Paul this morning, uh, Saul becoming a Christian, I want you to think about those two things and how they play into this story. How does Paul, how is Paul called by Jesus? And I'm sorry, all morning I'm going to go back and forth between Saul and Paul. And I, I'm meaning to say Saul because the text still says Saul at this point. But we talk about him as Paul, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slip, I know. But how does Saul learn how to confess Jesus? Both the positive side of who he is, but the negative side of what Saul has done. And how does he repent? He's going in a very uh, he, rigid direction. And God brings repentance in his life, and he turns and, and walks the other way. And then I want to invite you to think about it for your own story. How does confession play out in your life? Um, are you able to not only see the sin in your life, the transgressions, the, sing, the things you struggle with as God sees them, but are you also able to openly and joyfully acknowledge the person of Christ and who God is and his character throughout your life? Because that's what it means to confess. And if you're only doing one of them, I think that you're missing the power of God in your life. Because where does the power for discipleship lay in? It lays in seeing Jesus as God sees Jesus. That's where the power of confession, the ongoing discipling power of God in our life plays out when we are confessing Christ in that way. And we can see this same word uh, play out in two different scriptures. And we can see the two sides of the coin. So in James chapter 5, 16... The Apostle James, the brother of Jesus, writes, confess, that's that word, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you might be healed. So that's talking about the negative side. Again, not bad, but negative as in confessing sins. And notice that the concept of healing is directly tied to the concept of confession. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And I think James is talking about more than a physical healing there. I think he's talking about the inward soul healing that God desires to do in all people through his son. Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. But in Philippians 2, we see the other side of the coin. Again, it's the same word in Greek. And listen, this is Paul quoting from Um, An ancient Christian hymn, one of the first Christian hymns, uh, which is in Philippians chapter 2. And this is, um, these words come from Isaiah 43, 44. But it says, therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess. 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So our confession is to be uh, sharing about our sins to one another and being honest about that, but it's also to be the profession openly and joyfully of, of Christ. Uh, one quick rabbit trail about the power of confession in our lives. We know that for those of us who are in Christ, the enemy has been stripped of his power. Okay? Satan has been stripped of his power. He can still uh, cause suffering and that sort of thing, but when it comes to our soul and, and our spirit, that innermost part of us, what does that belong to? It's been sealed, it's been covered, it's been locked safely in the presence of God. Amen? And he has no access to that other than when we... Uh, whether inadvertently or purposefully, give him access to that. But what the enemy does is he, uh, he lies and he deceives. And one of his most powerful tools in the lives of Christians is the enemy blackmails us. And what I mean is this. So if I have a sin that I'm struggling with, a secret sin, what does the enemy whisper in my ear? I will expose you. I know exactly what you did, and I will expose you. And what that is, friends, is that is blackmail. That is Satan blackmailing me. If you don't do this, if you do that, I will expose you. And Satan does the same thing to you. So when you have secret sin, he has the power to blackmail. So guess what happens to the enemy when you openly confess your secret sins? He has no power. He comes to you and says, I will expose you. And you say, guess what? My brother already knows. God already knows. So you can go ahead and expose me if you want. But I already confessed it to my brother my sister. And they still love me. Because Jesus still loves me. And so you have no power here. You can't blackmail me. So there's a healing power of freedom in the spirit that comes when we confess our sins because the enemy is stripped of his blackmailing power in our lives. All right, that's a rabbit trail. But it's a good one. You should think about that. So should I. A few background things on Saul of Tarsus. Saul was probably a little bit younger than Jesus. Just a little bit. He was likely born within the first decade of the first century. He was probably right around the same age as the Apostle John, who was uh, most likely the youngest of the disciples. We don't know very much about Saul's family, but his father would likely have been a strict Pharisee. And we know this because he sends his son Saul to be trained by the Pharisees in Jerusalem. Their family home was in Tarsus, which is in modern-day Turkey. Towards the end of Acts, we learn that Saul has a sister and a nephew who were living in Jerusalem. When, Saul, uh, when there's a plot to assassinate Saul, um, it's his nephew. Luke tells us it's his nephew that, that warns him about it. So we know he's got a nephew and a sister that, that live in Jerusalem. Um, there's possibly more family that live there as well, but we don't know. It seems, um, from all that we can gather from the scriptures, it seems that uh, for his immediate family, at least, that Tarsus remained their home base. And, and Luke kind of glosses over it, but there is a large portion of Saul's life after he came to know Jesus before he went on his first missionary journey. 
There was, there was a, a good decade there, a good 10-year period or so where, where we know only a few little things. And one of the things we know is that Saul actually went back to Tarsus, to his home during that time. And so when he was a new Christian, he spent a good amount of time back in, in Tarsus. As far as his education, uh, Saul's father sent him to Jerusalem to be trained under the famous Pharisee rabbi uh, Gamaliel. And Saul was probably a teenager when he moved to Jerusalem. And he is such an interesting person, the, the worlds that came together in this one man. Because he's fluent in Greek, so much so that when people first meet him, they assume that he has a Greek heritage. That's how well he spoke, he spoke Greek. So Greek may have even been his first language. Um, so he's completely fluent in Greek. And when you read, um, and again, I'm no... I, I've taken the basics of all the biblical languages, but I'm, I'm no scholar in this. But when you read the difference between how Peter spoke Greek and how Saul spoke Greek, there's a big difference um, in the quality and the education level. So Saul, Saul was fluent, and he was uh, incredibly well-educated, not only in the Hebrew world, but also in the Gentile Greek world. In the Pauline epistles, he uses phrases and teachings that come from Greek philosophy, and so he mixes in Stoicism, and he mixes in Epicureanism, and he talks fluently um, about the cultural things that were happening in the day. So it was not an insulated life that, that he lived. He knew the culture of the day, and he knew it frontwards and backwards so much that he actually confronts the philosophers of the Greeks and can speak about their philosophies as well as they can themselves, which is really interesting. But we also know that he was trained under the leading rabbi, the uh, Pharisaic rabbi of the day. So he had an incredible Jewish um, education as well as his uh, Gentile um, Greek education. And he knows the scriptures, the Torah, the, the prophets. He knows them back and forth with his eyes closed, turned around and dizzy. Right? He just... I mean, you read the epistles and the man just flows with the Spirit of God through the Old Testament in amazing ways. So he had spent his life just saturated and soaking in the Old Testament. And again, this is a rabbit trail, but it's a really important one. If you've believed that the Old Testament is not for us today, that is a lie. The Lord speaks through the Old Testament. And if, if you want to understand Jesus, you also need to read the Old Testament. And, and because guess what the scriptures were for Saul when he talked about the scriptures? It was the Old Testament. Guess what the scriptures were when Jesus talked about the scriptures? It's the Old Testament. This is, this is still the authoritative uh, work from God. I, I saw um, uh, recently a very popular Christian teacher had said churches need to stop teaching out of the Old Testament. And when I read that, I was just so grieved in my heart and my spirit. This is God's word. This is God's word. And, and the reason why Saul carried so much authority in many ways was because of how much the scriptures, the Old Testament, the prophets, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the wisdom writings, the Torah, how much it was a part of who he was. He lived it. He breathed it. And he was passionate about it. And what we're going to see, the most important word, that he describes himself as, is he was zealous for it. Zealous for the law and the Torah and the scriptures of God. There were two leading schools of thought 
um, in how the Pharisees taught that uh, the Jewish posture should be to outside and internal threats. So there's two different schools of thought on how you deal with a threat. The first um, comes from a man named Hillel, and he was a leading rabbi of the previous generation, before Saul, before Gamaliel. And he advocated for a policy of live and let live. Let the Romans do their Gentile thing. God will take care of them. We don't have to revolt. We don't have to fight them. We don't have to sharpen our swords or anything like that. Our job is to study the word of God, to focus on God's presence, and God will take care of his own enemies. And we see that Saul's teacher, the one he was trained under, Gamaliel, who shows up in the New Testament in several places, he takes this approach with the Christians. And we read about this a few chapters ago in Acts chapter 5 when the, uh, when the apostles came before the Sanhedrin and they were talking about beating them or imprisoning them or even trying to have them killed. But this man says, no, we should let them go because if their movement is truly from God, then we're not going to be able to stop it anyways. And if it's not from God, the whole thing's going to collapse in on itself eventually. So there's a lot of wisdom in what what he advocated for. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 5. Now, um, Hillel had a rival, and his name was Shammai. And he was of the same generation, the one before. But he took a very different approach. His, uh, His sort of saying was, say your prayers and sharpen your swords. Political action was required for God's people. Zealousness, and that's that key word when it comes to understanding Saul. And it comes to understanding Uh, the Pharisees of the day. Zealousness for the law should lead to political action. And this was the approach taken by Saul, the opposite approach of his teacher. So even though he was trained under uh, Gamaliel, he apparently and quite clearly rejects uh, his teacher's stance on how to deal with outside threats and internal threats, which they perceived the the Christians to be. There are several places in the epistles where Saul describes his life before before he became a Christian. This gives us a little bit of clues about who he was and and what he thought like and how he behaved and what he believed. uh, To the Philippians, he wrote, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, A real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. Here's that word. This is how he describes himself. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. This means that when Saul was persecuting Christians, he was convinced that he was in perfect alignment with God's will. So, so he believed with all his heart that what he was doing was the right thing. It was the, it was the way to protect the purity of the people of Israel and, and the Torah and, and God's law. And he was zealous for it. He was convinced. To the Romans, when he's describing himself a little bit, he says, I ask then, has God rejected his own people, the nation of Israel? Of course not. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And that's why, of course, his name was Saul. Because the first king of Israel was named Saul. And where was Saul from? Tribe of Benjamin. So this is a tribal family name that Saul, uh, that Saul has. In Galatians, 
chapter 1, he talks a little bit even more about himself. He says, dear brothers and sisters, I want you to understand that the gospel message I preach is not based on mere human reasoning. I received my message from no human source and no one taught me. Instead, I received it by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. You know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion, how I violently persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. I was far ahead of my fellow Jews in my zeal for the traditions of my ancestors. But even before I was born, God chose me and called me to be his Uh, to be his marvelous grace, then it pleased him to reveal his son to me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. When this happened, I did not rush out to consult with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to consult with those who were apostles before I was. Instead, I went away into Arabia, and later I returned to the city of Damascus. And there's a reason why I really wanted to highlight the word zeal this morning. When the Pharisees, when, when Saul thought about being zealous for God, there were a few stories from the Old Testament that would have come to the front as models of what it was like to be properly zealous for God. One of the first ones uh, comes in the book of Numbers, and it's in a really strange story. You you all know the story of the talking donkey and Balaam. So uh, a Moabite king hired this prophet, Balaam, to curse the people of Israel. And Balaam was stopped by God. God wouldn't let him curse Israel. But Balaam had a problem because no curse, no fee, right? If you don't curse, if he didn't deliver on the goods for the king, he wouldn't get paid. So he came up with another plan. And he, sent, uh, he convinced the king to send uh, Moabite women into the Israelite camp to sleep with the men and to lead them into idolatry. Because in the ancient world, sex and worship went hand in hand. And I would say that they do today as well. But um, it would have included idol worship. And so the Israelite people, it says uh, in Peter, he describes it as they were beguiled. So the Israelite people were beguiled by the Moabite women. They came into the camp and they started uh, seducing the Israelite men and sleeping together. And uh, what happened is God sent a plague into the camp. And the plague was sweeping across the Israelite camp, and it would have consumed the whole camp. But one of Aaron's sons, whose name was Phinehas, do you remember what he did? He took a spear, or a javelin, and he went into a tent where the shenanigans were happening. And he, two hands over his head, brings the spear down through both of them. And, and it says, because of that, God stopped the plague. Now, the exact description of Phineas's action was, Phineas was zealous for God. So what did Phineas's zealousness lead to? Violence against the enemies of God. And God looked at it, and it actually says in one of the Psalms that God counted Phineas as righteous because of his zealous action. So this was a model of zealousness. A second model of zealousness comes from another story you likely know. Uh, the prophet Elijah on the mountaintop. And he has a showdown with the prophets of Baal. And if you remember, they, they, uh, he builds an altar and he drenches it with water. And he has the prophets of Baal build an altar. And then they have a showdown, a divine showdown. It's one of the like, most amazing stories in scripture. And Elijah says, you call to your God and I'll call to mine. And whoever God's, whichever God sends fire will know 
is the true God. And so for hours, the prophets of Baal beat themselves and cried out to God. And then and Elijah very sarcastically says, is he going to the bathroom? Is he asleep? Why isn't he answering the phone? Hasn't he gotten your texts, your tweets? Like, he, 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 hasn't, he hasn't answered. And then Elijah just prays this really simple prayer. And the fire of God rains down. But that's not where the story ends because then uh, Elijah takes out a sword. And you remember what he does. He slaughters all of the prophets of Baal. And so what does Elijah's zealousness for God's word and purity of worship lead to? Violence. Killing the enemy. This is so key to understanding Saul. Because he's looking back at Phineas, he's looking back at Elijah, these two exemplary men, these examples of what it means to be zealous of God and what that demands. And Saul is convinced with everything in him that the number one enemy to God coming back, restoring the glory of his temple, is not the outside threat of Rome, it's the internal threat of idolatry in the camp. And so when he's looking around and he sees these Jewish men and women worshiping a person, everything rises up within him and he says, that is idolatry. These Jewish men and women are worshiping a man. And so he looks at his teacher and he says, you are foolish for thinking that the best thing is just to be hands-off about this. Because God's word tells us exactly what to do with people who worship other gods inside the camp of Israel. You get your spear, you go into their tent, and you pierce them. You pull out your sword, and you slaughter them. And so Saul is zealous for God. And zealous and he sees himself. And this is, this, uh, a lot of this comes, uh, N.T. Wright breaks this down in such helpful ways. When he's going to kill the Christians, he's seeing himself in the lineage of Phineas, of Elijah, of these prophets who were zealous for God. And it led them to action in such a way that God restored righteousness in the camp of Israel. But, but, if Jesus is God's son and is raised from the dead, then how you read the Old Testament changes a little bit. Jesus is the ultimate interpretive hermeneutical key to understanding God's plan. See, God's desire from Genesis all the way to Revelation is to be here on earth with his people. He walks in the cool of the garden. He he commands them to build a tabernacle that carries his presence. He's with them in the fire and in the cloud here on earth. He's in the mercy seat. He sits upon the mercy seat here on earth. Then he dedicates the temple and his fire rains down on the sacrifices when Solomon built the temple. And there was this long-standing hope and tradition in Israel that all of redemptive history would culminate in God coming to earth fully and setting up his kingdom on earth. And that's still our hope as Christians. That's that's our same hope. 
Our hope is that Jesus returns and sets up his eternal kingdom here. Jesus says, behold, I make a new heavens and a new earth, and the dwelling place of God shall be with man. And so heaven and earth are like these two dimensions that were ripped apart through sin, and Jesus has been binding and sewing them back together into one dimension so that heaven and earth are the same place, the same thing, the same reality. And the closer you walk with Jesus, the more that it comes and locks into place until the new Jerusalem comes out of heaven and rests among us in such a way that God binds all of heaven and all of earth into one reality. And that was Saul's hope, but he thought that Jesus was the enemy to that, not the key to it. And so when he is on the road and he gets the thing that every prophet most wants, if you're a Jewish prophet... Because if you're a Jewish prophet, what you most desire is to have an experience where you're brought into the throne room of God, like Isaiah. That is the ultimate experience for a prophet of God. And Saul, who's zealous for the Lord, who's above and beyond all of his peers, dedicated to God's word, God's Torah. He's a gift. He's so gifted, so brilliant, so smart. And I think he sees himself as, as a prophet of God as he's walking down the road and the light comes out. And he looks up to see the Son, like God Almighty. He looks up to see like Isaiah saw God, like Daniel saw the Son of Man, like, like Ezekiel with the, with the chariot of, of fire and the spinning wheels that, that God sits on at the beginning of Ezekiel. Saul, the blinding light, he looks up expecting to see that. And lo and behold, who is there instead? Jesus, and everything that he thought he knew just peels off, falls off. And everything must be different from this moment forward. Everything has changed because he just saw Jesus raised from the dead. The account of Saul coming to Christ is told not once, not twice, three times in the book of Acts. Three different times the conversion of Saul is told. First in chapter 9, and then Saul tells his own conversion twice uh, later in the book. And I'm going to look at those uh, briefly because there's a few extra details. In Acts chapter 22, Saul is on defense. He's gone back to Jerusalem. This is towards the end of his recorded ministry that we know about before he went to Rome. And uh, the Jews are trying to kill him. And this is his defense. He says, brothers and esteemed fathers, Paul said, listen to me as I offer my defense. When they heard him speaking in their own language, the silence was even greater. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus, the city of Cilicia, and I was brought up and educated here in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. As his student, I was carefully trained in our Jewish laws and customs. I became very zealous to honor God in everything I did, just like all of you today. And I persecuted the followers of the way, hounding some to death, arresting both men and women, throwing them in prison. The high priest and the whole council of elders can testify that this is so. For I received letters from them to our Jewish brothers in Damascus, authorizing me to bring the followers of the way from there to Jerusalem in chains to be persecuted. As I was on the road approaching Damascus about noon, this is a new detail, Saul, when this revelation happened, it was broad daylight. Saul's walking on the road in the middle of the day. The sun is at high noon. 
a very bright light from heaven suddenly shone down around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord, I asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus the Nazarene, the one you are persecuting. The people with me saw the light but didn't understand the voice speaking to me. I asked, what should I do, Lord? And the Lord told me, get up and go into Damascus. And there you will be told everything you are to do. I was blinded by the intense light and had to be led by the hand to Damascus by my companions. A man named Ananias lived there. He was a godly man, deeply devoted to the law and well regarded by all the Jews of Damascus. He came and stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, regain your sight. And that very moment I could see. Then he told me, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and hear him speak. For you are to be his witness, telling everything, everyone what you have seen and heard. What are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. Have your sins washed away by calling on the name of the Lord. After I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple and I fell into a trance. So he sees Jesus a second time. I saw a vision of Jesus saying to me, hurry, leave Jerusalem for the people here won't accept your testimony about me. But Lord, I argued, they certainly know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And I was in complete agreement with your witness, Stephen, when he was killed. I stood by and kept the coats they took off when they stoned him. But the Lord said to me, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And then watch how the Jewish crowd responds to that. The crowd listened until Paul said that word. What word? Gentiles. That God loves Gentiles, loves all people. They listened until he said that word. Then they all began to shout, away with such a fellow. He isn't fit to live. They yelled, threw off their coats, and tossed handfuls of dust in the air. And if you've ever seen grown men do that, that is a sight to behold. I'm going to skip that. You should read about it. It's the third telling of Saul's Saul's, uh, conversion, and it takes place in Acts 26. So I'd encourage you to read that this week. And then I'm going to go back um, for the end of our our teaching here to uh, our scripture this morning, Acts chapter 9. And just point out a few more details that I think the Lord would have us learn from this morning. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. Hopefully all that context about Saul, about his zealousness for the law, hopefully that gives some greater understanding to why. Why he's uttering such threats, eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressing, addressed to the synagogue in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, it's, again, it's noon in the middle of the day, a light from heaven suddenly shone around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. I always wonder what happened to these men. Like, did they also become Christians because of this? Like, that would have been such a crazy experience for them. They're with Saul on the road and suddenly there's this noise and this light and like an explosion and activity and people are down on the ground and 
and they, don't, they hear a voice, but they can't understand what it's saying, and they can't see what's behind the light. And then all of a sudden, Saul is praying to Jesus, which it says that he started immediately praying to Jesus instead of, like, that would have been such a crazy experience for everyone involved. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. Thank God for Ananias. Thank God for this man. This is all that we know about him. But what a beautiful ministry he had. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. What's his immediate response? Soon as his name is said, Ananias. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. So, so Saul is praying to Jesus already. All he's had is the revelation of Jesus, and he's already praying to him. I've shown him a vision of a man named Ananias. So Ananias doesn't have much of a choice here. I showed Saul a vision of a man named Ananias. and Presumably, he looked a lot like you, buddy. Coming in and laying hands on him so he could see again. And then Ananias is like, but Lord, exclaimed Ananias. I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And you totally just ratted me out to him. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And that's the last thing I want to highlight from this passage this morning. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. From this moment forward, this description will characterize almost more than any other the ministry and the life of the Apostle Paul. Suffering, the suffering servant on behalf of God's sake, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Isaiah, there's a recurring theme about this suffering servant that God's going to send. He's going to send a suffering servant to Israel. Now, we know that that has been fulfilled ultimately in Christ. Isaiah 53 is often used as a direct prophecy of the ministry of Christ. But here's what I would propose to you. I think think that from this moment forward, Saul sees himself in the ministry of this suffering servant that God would send. Because part of the ministry of the suffering servant in, in Isaiah, it's directly tied to the suffering servant, is that God would call all the nations to his name. And what's Saul's mission? to call the nations to the name of Jesus and to suffer for Christ's sake. And I think this is key to understanding Saul because when he writes about his own ministry, if you read it in light of the suffering servant in Isaiah, it's a really helpful contextual and interpretive key into understanding how he thought about himself and why he wrote the things that he wrote. So Saul sees himself as as a suffering servant a prophetic minister sent by God to bring the nations, the Gentiles, to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. So confession is to see as God sees. Saul had not been seeing Jesus as God sees Jesus. From this point forward, Saul's life will be marked and characterized by seeing Jesus as God sees Jesus. 
and who also confess his sins. He knows that he persecuted the very ones that love the Lord and that the Lord loves. And he repents. He's going in one direction. He turns and walks the opposite direction. Praise team, you can come up. We're going to go into a time of com- communion. I want to share um, just a few closing thoughts about this. While they're coming up, I invite you to listen to this. This is um, from F.F. Bruce. And I love the title of this chapter. It just says, Paul Becomes a Christian. It's a really cool chapter title. He says, No single event apart from the Christ event itself has proved so determinate for the course of Christian history as the conversion and commissioning of Paul. And I would agree with that. Other than the resurrection, the ministry of Jesus, Paul coming to Christ and what happened because of that, what's what's come because of that, is as important as anything that we're going to read um, in in all of the scriptures. For anyone who accepts Paul's own explanation of his Damascus Road experience, it would be difficult to disagree with the observation of an 18th century writer who said, the conversion and apostleship of St. Paul alone, if you duly consider it, was of itself a demonstration sufficient to prove Christianity to be a divine revelation. We know Christianity is true because Christ was raised from the dead. That is the ultimate and binding proof of the truth of Christianity. But, close, I mean close in, in like powerful testimony. Saul was so anti-God, the fact that, or anti-Jesus, the fact that this man became the very vessel to bring Christ to the, the nations is an incredible proof of the truth and power of the story of Jesus Christ. And so we read the story, when you read the story, you should be encouraged, church, that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. He changes men like Saul and causes them to become like Paul. He works in our lives as powerfully today. So invite the Lord through confession, through repentance, to work and show you a new revelation of himself. We're going to take communion now. And how we do it here at Park Four Churches, we'll have deacons that serve the elements at the wings. And um, you can... Uh, go, do we, I always forget, do we go down the center aisles? Okay, so come down the center aisles and go back to your seats on the outward aisles. Go at your own pace. Um, so uh, you won't be dismissed just when you're ready to partake of the elements. You can get up and, and come take them. You can take them back to your seat or you can partake of them up at the front. Um, this is to be a contemplative worship uh, time. We invite you to, to stand and sing while we're singing or, or kneel or or pray, whatever, whatever is helpful for you to be in a place of receiving the ministry of the Lord this morning. We invite anyone, um, if you're visiting with us and you normally partake of communion at your home church, you are welcome to join us. We would ask uh, that, that um, you have a relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Um, that would be the requirement to take the bread and the cup. And the other is that if you're carrying any offense towards a brother or sister, that first you release that in forgiveness before you take the elements because what this means when we take it is that you're agreeing that God has forgiven you and the word of God says forgive as you've been forgiven so um, I invite you into that I'm going to pray and pray uh, that the Lord would lead us in this time God thank you for your presence this morning thank you for the story of Saul and uh, I can't I'm sure that the first time he took the bread broken for him in the body poured out for him that that was a very special thing because he talks about that 
um, in, the, in some of his letters in such a profound and beautiful way, like he does in 1 Corinthians, just talking about God's love shown for us through his spilled blood and his broken body. And so we join in the great tradition of Christians reaching back to that first uh, supper, that last supper with Christ, when he took the body and said, this is, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. We remember you, Jesus, that you were, you were crucified and crushed on our behalf. But that's not the end of the story because God raised you from the dead and you were seated at the right hand of the Lord and you are truly God alone. We worship and pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.